Flexibility is great. That's why there's yoga. Flexibility for your insurance coverage is great too. That's why there's United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, United Healthcare Insurance Plans offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. One of these plans may be right for you if you're, say, between jobs, coming off your parents' plan, turning a side hustle into a full hustle, or even missed open enrollment. Want more flexibility? Find out more about United Healthcare Insurance Plans at uh1.com. You never change the age that you are internally, I don't think. I think everything just changes around you, and, and uh, it's sometimes quite scary when you look at your watch and you're 40 years old. What it means to be 50 years of age today has little in common, very little in common, with what it meant to be 50 years of age a couple of centuries ago. I can run, I can swim like a bastard. I still I can do all the things I could do at 45. These guys are, have figured that we figured out that we can, there are certain buttons that people can push and levers that we can pull, so to speak, which do have impact on the ageing process. We don't give a toss what other people think about what we should be or who we should be. It's quite glorious in many ways. It's very liberating. I'm Noelle McCarthy. This is A Wrinkle in Time. A Wrinkle in Time. A Wrinkle in Time. And after 24, I go to be 23. And after 23, I'm going to be 22. A podcast series about ageing in a world that wants us to stay young. I remember being on one of the speaking tours that my dad used to take me on and I was over the Pacific Ocean on the way to LA and I was travelling at an enormous rate of knots in a plane, probably faster than I'd ever travelled before in my life, but it seemed like I was going really slowly and I was also going back in time over the date line and flying into a night that I'd actually already experienced before, but everything seemed really still. And I feel almost like now I'm still 12 and the fuselage has just got <laughs> really rattled and unprepossessing. Time is the currency of our lives. It ticks by and we get older. There's a moment sometime around the age of 50, the picture that I had of myself shifted in my head from a young woman to a middle-aged woman, and I quite like it. I see, I see myself, when, you know, when I'm imagining myself in my head, I see myself slightly differently now, a bit more grown up with a bit more wisdom. Getting older is the most ordinary thing in the world, but there's an extraordinary aspect to the process at this particular moment in time. Improvements in living standards and health care have led to an unprecedented rise in life expectancy across the developed world. The last 150 years have given us more time in which to age than we've ever had before. And there's never been so much pressure to spend our hopefully lengthy lives looking and feeling feeling young. Like I look in the mirror and I do look older with grey hair. You know, being blonde can get you a lot of places, you know. But I didn't want to be that blonde woman where, you know, you sometimes see women from behind and they've got this amazing hair and gorgeous outfit and they look amazing. They turn around and, oh, it's like a leather pincushion or something. Their face is just like, oh, my God, what have you done to yourself? Over the next six episodes of A Wrinkle in Time, we'll explore some of the physical, social and emotional aspects of ageing. We'll meet experts and scientists 
But this isn't an investigation of how to age well, whatever that means. The more I found out about ageing from the people who study it, the more I learned that there's no one way to go about it. For some of us, ageing means staying active as long as possible. Some of us want as much restfulness and contemplation as we can get. Both approaches, it seems, are good for us. And it's even better if you can strike a balance between the two. But ultimately, ageing is like living. We can go about it however we choose. There are as many ways to age as there are people ageing. You've already heard from some of them in this episode. Ali and Bob, Sabine, Ella, Wendell and Michelle. You'll also hear from Deborah and Daphne and Mia as well. Some voices will be familiar to you from television or radio and some will be new. They'll range in age from 4 to 100 and they all have one thing in common. They're all getting older, just like the rest of us. One day, one hour, one minute, one second at a time. Let time be still who takes all things Face feature and memory under his blinding wings. Maui was a demigod who was a tricky, tricky, very clever man. This is Shannon, who I work with. She's telling me about Maui. Tales of his great feats are not only part of Māori folklore, but of the mythologies of many people around the Pacific. And one in particular is he tried to defy death. He thought he could um, trick and he thought he could create or become immortal if he reversed the birth process. Immortality legends are found all over the world and down through history, but Maui's effort is possibly the only one to be hobbled by a noisy little bird. As he was entering her, the piwaka waka or the fantail thought it looked so hilarious. He shrieked out in laughter, waking Hini Nui to poor, and then Maui was crushed between her legs, and that's how he died. Like Maui's ill-fated attempt at reversing the birth process, the Epic of Gilgamesh, one of our earliest written stories from ancient Mesopotamia, also deals with a bid for eternal life. Gilgamesh was a king who wanted more than his allotted span of years. It didn't end well for him either, but at least Gilgamesh made his peace with mortality at the end. Legends like this are responses to a simple fact. Living means ageing and death waits for us all at the end. No one here gets out alive, as the song goes. And it seems the longer we live, the greater our horror of the end. I'm terrified of dying a long, slow death in an old person's home because I saw my mother in an old person's home and I saw other people in there too. My horror is not getting cancer. Um, my horror is is that sort of end-of-life thing where you spend five or ten years shuffling along a corridor to have dinner at five o'clock with people that you loathe. We'll talk about death a bit more in the last episode of the series. Being mortal, it's the logical place to end up. But we'll take our time getting there, don't worry. And it's not all doom and gloom in the meantime. Getting older comes with many satisfactions. Celebratory rites of passage are a part of growing up. 
I used to lie when I was very young and try to get into pubs, but I think that's a national sport in this country. And free run of the local isn't the only benefit of chalking up the years. One of the things I have enjoyed most about getting old, um, and particularly in the Māori world where you, you, you receive a lot more respect for being older, which is very comfortable, and you get fed first and people find you nice seats, which is fabulous. But one of the other advantages I found is I care less and less about what my peers think. And actually, as I hit my 60s, most of my peers, I really feel, think the same way that I do, that um, that we don't give a toss what other people think about what we should be or who we should be. It's quite glorious in many ways. It's very liberating. That honoured place of elders that Ella's talking about is still an important ideal in Māori communities. We'll explore it in more detail later on in the series. But in many Western cultures, as the pace of life gets faster, our attitudes towards older people have changed. Clearly, we live in an age that privileges youth very evidently over ageing. And I don't think it would be an exaggeration to say that ageing is almost equivalent to a form of disgrace. Professor Robert Harrison from Stanford University says old age isn't respected the way it used to be. Everything conspires to... Uh, postpone the aging process or to delay it or militate against it as much as possible. Youth culture is nothing new, he says, but it has taken off within a relatively short period of time. It's the post-war period above all when this uh, storm of juvenescence, as I call it, uh, really picks up a lot of energy. And it has a lot to do with Americanization, but it is not only um, an effect of Americanization. I think what I suggest is that Americanization is the primary symptom of this juvenescence that has um, a long history in our world cultures, but especially in in Western culture. But somehow in the post-war period, there's been an enormous acceleration due to inventions of new technologies, due to um, increased longevity due to cultural revolutions having to do with um, the 60s, but not only the 60s, also before the 60s. And it seems like a number of things have conspired to make our post-war era that has liberated a tremendous amount of youthful energy in the culture as a whole. It's easy to say that we've been through this with every generation. There's the lament of the elderly to um, that the the young don't have uh, uh, have have no sense of, of the historical and so forth. But I just find it so self-evident that the era we live in is so dramatically younger in all the possible cultural modalities that uh, for me there there's something self-evidently unprecedented about the era we live in and i'm actually quite astonished that it's not obvious to everyone uh, that that something very bizarre is going on didn't mick jagger say he didn't want to be singing satisfaction when he was 45 it's his birthday in july He'll be 73. 
Holding on to a youthful outlook may be part of the job description for Mick and Keith, but increasing life expectancy means more and more of us can rock harder into old age. That changes entirely our way of uh, how we live our age and what it means to be 50 years of age today has little in common, very little in common with what it meant to be 50 years of age a couple of centuries ago, not to mention a couple of millennia ago and not to mention prehistory. Well, if it was a couple of millennia ago, you'd be dead most likely by 50. You would be dead, exactly. And and the idea that at 50, I might reasonably expect to live another 40 years means that you're almost you know, halfway through your life, which means that you consider yourself still young. And in a certain sense, it's true. At 50 years of age is still relatively young because of the increased life expectancy. Is that how much of an existential challenge does that pose, do you think, having all of this time, having all of this life? Yes. I think it varies according to the individual. There are some people who find it completely marvellous and um, they are the ones who are most aggressively pro-youth, where they think that at 70 years of age, they are entitled to behave like you know, young, young people in their 20s or 30s, because they feel that um, that's the age mentality that corresponds you know, to them psychologically. Then, of course, the question is what happens with their, you know, the aging of their bodies and the sickness and, the, and, the, and their, uh, all those kinds of things that still do uh, attend to the aging process. One, I think, lives it a little bit as if it's against the order of nature. And it, if one could have the means to reverse all the signs of aging and um, rejuvenate the self, continuously through stem cell search or whatever other artificial means. I know a lot of my fellow citizens in America would, you know, gladly opt for those, um, for those enhancements. But what I find is that it does something to compromise the whole notion of the maturation process. All the world's a stage, and all the men and women merely players. They have their exits and their entrances, and one man in his time plays many parts, his acts being seven ages. When Shakespeare wrote As You Like It in the 16th century, there were seven ages of man. Now it's more like eight or nine. And then the justice in fair round belly with good cape and lined, with eyes severe and beard of formal cut, full of wise souls and modern instances. And so he plays his part. The sixth age shifts into the lean and slippered pantaloon, with spectacles on nose and pouch on side, his youthful hose well saved, a world too wide for his shrunk shank. Somewhere between the justice in fair round belly and the shrunk shank and manly voice turned childish pipe, we've been gifted with a whole new chunk of time. What used to be old age is now more like your prime. I've just turned 75. I feel 45. I've given myself kind of permission to be 45. I'm not stupid, so I don't want to be 20. I never really want to be 20. But I'm going to be in the Masters Games next year. And I believe in giving yourself permission not to age. 
This extra time we're now playing in is a bonus, but there are challenges involved in 70 being the new 60 and 50 being the new 40 and so forth. I've found that you have to work much harder to maintain something that's not that much great shakes in the first place. I remember university and every lunchtime was a steak and cheese pie and a bottle of V. And if I was still hungry after that, I'd have um, a 50 cent scoop of chips and that would just carry on for days and days and days. And, and I had a waspish waist and cheekbones that you could hang um, pictures off. But now, no, that, that's not the case. A lot of work has to go into maintaining not very much. Perhaps when I turned 60, I realised I was mortal. You know, you know when you turn 60 that a significant chunk of your life is over. So it does add a certain frisson to the remaining days of your life. You do feel like you should get things done. And in the last couple of years, becoming increasingly immobile, uh, depending on the weather and barometric pressure, I can feel very old some days and other days quite sprightly, thank God. It's understandable, feeling the need to make an effort to look after ourselves once we hit middle age, especially when we know we're likely to be sticking around for anything up to another 50 years. This wasn't something even our more recent ancestors needed to plan for. By today's standards, you would think, uh, you know, a life expectancy of 55, that doesn't seem much, but it was good by the standard of the time. Alistair Woodward is Head of Epidemiology and Biostatistics at the University of Auckland. He's telling me about a time not that long ago, in 1870, when life expectancy in New Zealand was the highest in the world. There was something about the New Zealand environment, and we think it was partly that New Zealand escaped the urban penalty of industrialisation, pollution and crowding and the diseases like cholera and so on that affected um, populations in England. And it was partly, very largely actually, we believe, uh, a nutrition thing that um, migrants came to New Zealand and they couldn't believe that they could have fresh meat for breakfast, lunch and dinner. And they did frequently. <laughs> they took full advantage of <laughs> the availability. They took full advantage of all that, that dairy fat and, uh, and fresh meat. And that resulted in larger children, taller adults. New Zealand adults were taller than anybody else in the, in the empire, except perhaps the South Africans and the Australians. Uh, so I think uh, that was part of the story. And then another part of the story is that... Um, in my view, New Zealand governments made some good decisions along the way. Mortality rates were much higher for Māori New Zealanders than for the recent arrivals. And even though New Zealand life expectancy was the highest in the world around 1870, the average life expectancy was still only 55. That'll be John Key's next birthday. Nor were they particularly good years health-wise by today's standards. People put up with a lot then. You know, that was the age when... Uh, I remember my grandmother telling me that uh, women would get all their teeth taken out before they were married because it would tidy things up and it wouldn't be a cost on their husband because, of course, people who kept their teeth did tend to have run into lots of problems. And what's our expectancy now by contrast? Life expectancy yeah. at, at birth at the moment is close to about 80. You know, it's like more for women than men, but there, there's only, a, again, that's a gap that's closing it's only a couple of years, um, 79 for men, 81 for women. Other countries have now overtaken New Zealand in life expectancy as the longevity curve continues to climb. Exactly when the curve begins to flatten off, we don't know. 
the sort of bellwether, the signal statistic is probably that for Japanese women because they have the longest life expectancy of any group in the world. What are they doing that's that's keeping them alive for so long? It, well, a uh, good question. I don't know whether they're exactly sure about that. It's uh, dietary, uh, no doubt. There's uh, that aspect to it. The Japanese society is relatively egalitarian compared with New Zealand or other societies. So uh, they do well overall because there are few people at the bottom of the pile or the, the bottom of the pile is not so far beyond where most people live. They have a healthcare system that is high volume and efficient and accessible. They are socially well organised and disciplined and um, so public health programs tend to be delivered very effectively. There are a few things about Japan that I think we can learn from. But the point is, if we're going to hit the ceiling, then the Japanese will hit it first. That's the sort of the logic. And yet, year on year, um, life expectancy for Japanese women is continuing to increase. My family is still in Japan, and I go to Japan you know, every year or every other year. Professor Naoko Muramatsu is an expert on ageing societies at the University of Illinois in Chicago. With an 82-year-old mother in Tokyo, she's experiencing firsthand the changes brought about by rising longevity in her hometown. I noticed that the um, older apartment complex uh, complex that was built long time ago uh, in 1960s, 1970s, um, there used to be lots of kids playing in a playground. Now you don't see kids. You will see older couples, older persons walking as slowly and quietly. But of course, it's not only in Japan that life expectancies are rising. Better health care, better nutrition and large-scale vaccination programmes are all increasing life expectancy at birth across the developed world. Longer life is the gift that keeps on giving, and it's showing no sign of slowing down. In the last 20 years, for both men and women, life expectancy at birth has been increasing by three to four years a decade. Uh, and it really is a, a most remarkable change. Another way of thinking about it is that's um, sort of roughly three, four months a year, every year, um, is being added on to people's um, expectation of life at birth. I read somewhere that that was six hours a day. Yes. Which sounds even yes. more remarkable. It does sound even more remarkable. Uh, and, and in the history of Homo sapiens, it's unprecedented, you know, as far as we can tell. Um, human life expectancy was bumping along pretty steadily at about 30 years um, for uh, tens or hundreds of thousands of years. And it's really only in the last 150 years that it's accelerated in the way uh, that we're seeing now. To give an idea of how rapidly longevity is increasing within our lifetimes, take me as an example. I was born in 1978, the year the first ever cell phone came out and disco stormed the charts. Life expectancy at birth in 1978 was 75 and a half years, so I should be halfway through my life by now. However, according to a calculator on Statistics New Zealand's website, I can now expect to live to be anywhere between 88 and 92. Go to stats.govt.nz and browse How Long Will I Live to work out your life expectancy. So how high is longevity likely to climb within the next 100 years? 
Yes, will it be close to 100? Uh, it's what uh, you know, people like to think about. It's easy to think about centuries. Um, at the present rate um, of increase, uh, it'll probably be in the 90s by um, 2116. How old do you feel? Oh, I don't feel 100. Uh, in some ways, it's all right, but it's a bit pointless. Do you get bored? No, I don't get bored. I, I play my harp. That's Daphne from Tauranga. We'll hear more from Daphne as we go on. Gains in longevity notwithstanding, ageing is not for sissies, as the actress Betty Davis said. The prospect can be a scary one, involving the gradual loss of physical and mental aptitude, the descent into frailty and the rest. Do you know what happens when you get old? Um, you die. Mia may be only four years old, but she's not wrong. For a long time, it was that promise of the afterlife that consoled us in the face of our mortality. Increasingly, though, it's the new frontiers opened up by science that are providing succour. Chronological age is the biggest risk factor there is for things like uh, dementias or heart attacks or strokes or cancers or arthritis or diabetes and a long list of other things that account for most problems that uh, modern societies are having with their health care. Dr James Kirkland from the Mayo Clinic in Minnesota is one of the scientists at the coalface of multi-million dollar efforts to help us live longer, healthier lives. It's not any one disease in particular that he and his fellow researchers are grappling with, but rather the effects of the passage of time itself. What I think the basic biology of ageing field is asking is whether we can delay all of these things and improve health span by targeting fundamental ageing mechanisms and delaying chronic age-related diseases as a group instead of picking them off one at a time. According to the book of Genesis, Methuselah was 969 years old when he died. Does targeting ageing processes mean the era of modern-day Methuselahs could be at hand? There's always been people who've speculated that it might be possible to live to 500 or 1,000. Uh, I guess anything is possible. I don't see that happening in the near future. It's not the major focus of much of the aging field at the moment, especially people who are doing translational work. The main effort is on trying to improve uh, health span and hopefully reduce or compress the period of when people are feeling ill and disabled towards the end of life. I think it's early days to be speculating about much in the way of uh, large increases in um, maximum lifespan. I think the main thing we need to focus on is figuring out ways to delay age-related chronic diseases. One compound that's had some success already in potentially expanding health spans was discovered here in New Zealand by two professors at the University of Otago. It's a mitochondrial antioxidant, mitochondria being the powerhouses or battery packs of cells. How does it work? It's pretty straightforward, according to MitoQ CEO Greg McPherson. It's not rocket science, if you will. I mean, the, the guys that thought it up we were rocket scientists, literally. But in terms of looking at it, if, if you get your mitochondria working, if you get the cells' energetics working properly, then the cells have enough energy to do the things they need to do, all the housekeeping, all the repair. And so if we can get these mitochondria working properly, the cells are, in a, I guess, in a state which they might be when they were younger. And through that, we can, I guess, 
help those cells be as healthy as they can. And if we've got healthy cells, we've got healthy organs, and that potentially means the absence of, of disease and, and a longer life. Last year, MitoQ was added to the testing programme of the US National Institute of Ageing, one of the most important research programmes in the world. We were selected because the scientific panels that uh, select the compounds for these research think that we can have an impact for around 10 to 15 percent on, on ageing, which would, would be a, up to, say, 10 years for, for a human lifespan, so quite a significant impact. And it's not just about ageing, it's all about healthy ageing as well, so it's about extending the health span and staying well as long as we can. Researchers at the Mayo Clinic are moving closer to achieving the same goal. More recently, we've discovered drugs, actually just at the beginning of 2015, we reported them, that specifically kill senescent cells, these uh, cells that accumulate with aging and that produce things that cause dysfunction in cells and tissues near them. And they seem to be having um, some pretty interesting effects in mice. The kinds of places we'd see them being of use in people to begin with, if this all works, would be to try to, um, for example, in um, older people who have what we call multimorbidity, who have many different medical conditions within the same person, whether we could alleviate several of those conditions with a single agent. For example, if a person has a combination of a bit of diabetes, a bit of mild cognitive impairment, a bit of uh, problem with uh, blood flow to their heart or their brain, um, some osteoarthritis and so forth, would um, a single medication that targets fundamental aging processes help to reduce uh, symptoms from or, or effects of each of those conditions or, or several of those conditions within the same individual. And because it looks like we can do that in mice now. The big question now is whether these interventions can be translated between species. Kirkland and his team are trying to move as fast as they can to determine if senolytic drugs can work on people. MitoQ has started human tests as well. We are actually working with a number of universities in the United States, uh, looking at kidney health, uh, heart health, um, neurological dysfunction. Um, so quite a few... Um, Quite a lot of research is happening right now in humans and we expect to see the, that research come through this year and early next year. It's still early days. MitoQ was only added to the NIA testing programme late last year. But Greg McPherson believes the US research is putting us on the threshold of a new frontier. These guys are, have figured that we figured out that we can, there are certain buttons that people can push and levers that we can pull, so to speak, which do impact on the ageing process and mitochondrial uh, dysfunction is one of those. So uh, it's, it's, uh, I guess over the next 10 years I suspect these, these folk will identify a number of interventions that we can make which will significantly impact on ageing.
Botox Cosmetic, out of botulinum toxin A, FDA approved for over 20 years. So, talk to your specialist to see if Botox Cosmetic is right for you. For full prescribing information, including boxed warning, visit BotoxCosmetic.com or call 877-351-0300. Remember to ask for Botox Cosmetic by name. To see for yourself and learn more, visit BotoxCosmetic.com. That's BotoxCosmetic.com.